Well, I think we can all relate to the feeling of being shockingly surprised. Uh, in good ways, there's those times when you don't expect a friend or a family member to show up to a certain event and they surprise you and there they are. Or maybe you get a bonus or a pay raise at work and you're surprised in a pleasant way. Um, maybe it's a surprise birthday party. I know a bunch of you gathered together a couple of years ago and uh, really surprised me. I thought I was going over to Mark and Sean's to play some guitar and play some games and there were 30 people hiding in the garage the whole time. So... <laughs> That was great. Um, not a huge fan of those, but it was fun anyways. <laughs> On the bad side of things, maybe uh, you've been surprised by a bad grade. You thought you aced a test and you get it back and you got a D or an F. Unfortunately, I've also been there. Uh, maybe on a more serious note, you've been surprised by an injury in a family, in a family member or a death in the family, uh, something that was bad news and it, it was just a shocking surprise. And friends, tonight we're going to look at a, a surprise for many uh, as they enter into eternity in the next hard saying of Jesus. You can begin to turn to the, the Gospel of Luke if you've got your Bible with you. If not, you can look on with your neighbor or Google it. <clears throat> tonight we're going to talk about eternity because the text talks about eternity. It sets up a dichotomy between two places that are permanent irreversible, and in complete opposition to one another. And the dichotomy is that of heaven and hell. The passage that we're going to talk about tonight directly relates to every one of us in this room because every one of us in this room is going to one of two places. You're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. And a study shows, in fact, that pretty much everybody who believes that there is a heaven thinks that they're going there. Imagine that. However, the passage we're going to look at is going to present a shocking surprise to many, and I believe even some who are here tonight. And so if you've got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 16, and we're going to look at verses 19 to 31. And before we do, I just want to give us a running start with the context. In chapter 15, Jesus had gathered together tax collectors who were uh, not exactly good people in that day and age, and sinners. And I think that speaks for itself. Tax collectors and sinners, and he's teaching them in chapter 15, verse 1. And immediately following this, the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of the day, enter into the conversation by complaining and saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus launches into three parables to the Pharisees to explain God's love for sinners. He talks about the lost sheep, he talks about the lost coin, and he talks about the prodigal son. This is all still within chapter 15. Now moving to 16, he focuses on his own disciples, his 12 guys, and the issue regarding faithfulness with things here on earth, and in particular with money, probably in opposition to the Pharisees who were terrible with money. They loved it, uh, they served it, they lived for it. And so he, he talks about things in, in chapter 16, like we're not to serve money or love it, but we're to steward it for the Lord's sake. And once again, the Pharisees are listening in. They just can't help themselves. They're listening in on this Jesus guy who is starting to get a following. And in verse 14, actually, of chapter uh, 15, uh, actually of chapter 16, verse 14, it says, when the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening in on all these things, they were scoffing at him. So they're scoffing at Jesus, and now Jesus is going to turn back to the Pharisees and address them on their love of money. He was going to talk to them about true love for God, 
And all of his disciples are listening in on this. So that's the context. He's talking to the Pharisees. The disciples are right there. And in fact, if you fast forward to chapter 17, he then turns back to his disciples and gives them a lesson based on what he just said to the Pharisees. And so he knows they're listening. So all of that is background. Look at Luke chapter 16 and starting in verse 19. It's a long passage, but I'll read it kind of slow. Luke 16, 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony." Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, or he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So this is the passage we're going to look at tonight. Just as another little introductory note, there's a little bit of debate as to whether or not this is a true story or it's a parable. And I just want to say this, it really doesn't matter in a sense because in either case, whether it's a parable that Jesus made up for the point of illustrating something or if it's a true story, Jesus is teaching a spiritual truth and a lesson to be learned. He's presenting a gospel truth to those who are present, the Pharisees and his disciples. And my leaning is that it's a parable and really the only hang up for it being a parable is that it's the only parable where he uses a person's name, Lazarus. And we'll get to that in a minute. But in any case, the point is Jesus is presenting an example scenario to illustrate this truth of eternity and heaven and hell. And so let's dig into this. I want to work back through this with a little bit of detail and pull out the truth that God wants us to hear tonight. And I want to begin by introducing these characters and looking at them a little bit closer. So you've got these two guys. You've got the rich man and Lazarus. And first, let's look at the rich man. There's at least two major things that pop off the pages to me about the rich man. And the first is this. The rich man desired recognition and honor. Look again at verse 19. It says, There was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. Now, purple was and still is really a color of honor and majesty. A lot of times kings wear purple. And you didn't wear purple for yourself, right? You didn't wear purple pajamas. You wore purple to be noticed by other people. And so this man wore purple and fine linen because he wanted others to show him honor, to show him respect. This man wanted praise, honor, and respect for others. And we might even say that he lived for it because he habitually weared it. 
wore it. He didn't just once in a while throw on his purple robe, but he wore it all the time. He was constantly in purple and fine linen. And actually, one commentary said it was probably fine linen underwear, just as a side note. So, this man wanted to be be recognized from people all the time. He lived luxuriously. And secondly, he lived in a perpetual state of indulgence. It says, joyously living in splendor every day. So every day, he lived in splendor. Every day, he lived in grandeur. Every day, he did what he wanted and he had fun. That's what his life surmounted to. He brought happiness to himself by the temporary pleasures of life and certainly didn't fulfill this idea of working hard six days and resting one because he just rested every day. He lived his life in splendor. And just a note about this, I do want to point out, it's not wrong to have wealth, right? In 1 Timothy 6, when God addresses the wealthy, he gives them instruction not to sell everything you have and give it to the poor, but he says, let me read this so I don't mess it up. He says, Do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. So he says for them to be rich in good works. So wealth is not the issue here. I'm not saying wealth is, but the issue is what rules your heart. This man was ruled by his wealth. Clearly, this man was ruled by his position of honor and by living a luxurious life. And so that's the rich man. How about Lazarus? Well, we can pick up at least two things about Lazarus in this story. Number one, he was sick. Number two, he was poor. Look again at verse 20. 20 and 21 say that he was laid at the gate, which means he was likely paralyzed. He's covered with sores, which means he's got some sort of sickness or disease or perhaps leprosy. He's longing to be fed, so he's hungry. He can't even afford food because he can't work. And to add to this, the dogs are licking his sores. These would have been uh, street dogs, wild dogs that roamed around and looked for scraps that after someone was done eating, they'd wipe off their hands and throw the scraps out out the door to the dogs. And Lazarus is down where this scrap pile would be with the dogs, getting the scraps off this man's table. He can't even defend himself, and the dogs are licking his sores. So this is the state of Lazarus. And I want to point out another thing about Lazarus as we're considering him. Notice that nowhere in this passage does he complain about his state of being. In fact, nowhere in this passage does Lazarus say anything, good or bad, which is interesting because there may have been a temptation for him to want to gloat later on when he is in heaven, and yet he doesn't. He doesn't complain about his state on earth. He doesn't gloat about his state in heaven. And though this passage, another note about Lazarus, though this passage doesn't explicitly state it, we can know for certain, based on his eternity, that Lazarus also had saving faith in God. Because of this, he would soon be comforted. So these are the two characters we're setting up, rich man, Lazarus, and Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees. And that's important to keep in mind, and here's why. The Pharisees are the audience, and I'll mention again, Lazarus never says a word, and here's the significance of that, is that the main character of the story is not Lazarus. I would say the main destination of the story is not heaven. There are other passages that talk about heaven explicitly. This passage, though, the main character is the rich man, and the main destination is heaven, or is hell. It's hell. It's not heaven. The main character is the rich man. The main destination is hell. This is not a comforting passage, friends. It's not. It's not a hope-giving passage. Revelation 21 is. This is not. This is a warning passage. It's a passage about hell and a warning of going there. Now, this doesn't exclude application to believers. Keep in mind, the disciples are listening in, but this is 
primarily a warning against going to hell. And so now I want to look, looking at the rich man and Lazarus, I want to examine their fates, where they end up, and look at verse 22. It says, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Okay, we'll pause there. So the poor man dies, he's carried to Abraham's bosom. And this phrase, Abraham's bosom, really stems from the, from the fact that Abraham was God's guy, right? Abraham was known as Father Abraham to all the Jews. Oh, Father Abraham. Even Paul refers to Abraham as the father of both ethnic Jews and all those who would place faith in him. And so, Abraham is a very significant player in every Jew's mind. They knew that wherever Abraham was, God was there, right? They knew Genesis 15. They knew Abraham had believed God and he had credited it to him as righteousness. They knew that Abraham would be in heaven. And so they aspired to be like Abraham and they wanted to be where he was. And so this phrase, Abraham's bosom, is a way of saying that they were right next to Abraham, right near him at the banquet feast in heaven. Okay, so we're talking about heaven here. So you can imagine this man, the rich man, being a Jew and likely a Pharisee, since that's who Jesus is comparing him to. You can imagine the shock when he looks up and sees Lazarus, of all people, next to Father Abraham at the banquet, right? Now, I want to ask this question. Why was Lazarus with God? Why did Lazarus get to go to heaven and the rich man went to hell? And we're going to get to the rich man in a minute. But I believe a large clue in discovering this answer is found in Lazarus' name alone. Again, whether the story is a parable or not, it doesn't really matter because he could have been named after he was in heaven or he could have been named prophetically. But here's the thing, guys. Lazarus means one who has been helped. That's what Lazarus means. One who has been helped. And I want to ask the question, was Lazarus helped on earth? Was he helped on earth? No. Did the rich, I mean, we know that for, for certain that the rich man didn't help him on earth. So in which way was Lazarus one who had been helped? Well, he was helped spiritually in death, right? He was helped in life because he had believed in God and it was manifested in his death as he was comforted in heaven. Lazarus had found his faith in God and put it only in God and not at all in himself. And if you think about it, he's the perfect character to represent this. Lazarus was already poor and helpless on earth. He had no means of providing for himself. He was completely dependent on other people for any sort of sustenance. He was poor. He was paralyzed. He was hungry. He couldn't even fight off a dog. And it's a perfect setup of showing his faith in God in the same way the carryovers that he found himself poor spiritually, poor in spirit, that is. He found himself trusting in another completely and 100% for salvation. And that was his trust in God. And friends, I just want to tell you this now. This is the only way to get to heaven. This is the clear teaching of Scripture, book after book after book after book, is that you must put your faith in God and God alone. And I know there's too many people that are putting their trust in their own religiousness, their own deeds, their own family heritage growing up. But Lazarus is an example of one who put his faith in God and cried out, God, help me. God, help me. And this is the difference between Lazarus and the rich man. If you think about the rich man, he's pretty much the exact opposite. The rich man was religious, again, likely a Jew and and actually probably a Pharisee. Uh, because Jesus is likening the Pharisees to the rich man, and yet he didn't make it in because he trusted in himself. Okay, well, as that is a segue, let's talk about the rich man's fate. Look at verse 22 again. It says, 
The poor man died, was carried away to the angels, by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And as we go back into the rich man's fate, what do you think the significance of him being buried is? Well, notice it doesn't say anything about the poor man, Lazarus, being buried. And that's because, I just want to ask, do you think uh, the, Lazarus had a formal funeral? Do you think he had people who would attend his funeral? Do you think he had a proper burial? No, I hate to be graphic, but Lazarus was likely thrown out with the scraps. His body was just dumped in the dump. And yet the rich man, again, as the final uh, just exclamation of his uh, luxurious lifestyle, he was formally buried. He probably had a lot of people who attended his funeral. And so it appeared as though he went out with a bang. And yet I can't even help, guys. Just think about this. He had all these riches. He, had, he wore purple and fine linen every day. And yet, like Deontay said last week, no one's going to pull a U-Haul behind a hearst. The rich man couldn't take any of this into the afterlife. He's six feet underground. He died and he was buried. Every one of us is going to die and we're going to be buried. That's the fate we're, we're facing. And if there's one thing I want you to take away from tonight, I want you to think about eternity. That's why in every point in this sermon, there's something to do with eternity because I believe God's getting our attention when it comes to the issue of eternity. The rich man died, was buried, and his bones decayed. Now, unfortunately for him, his fate only grew worse. That wasn't the end. We're all going to be buried, but we're also all going to stand before God one day. And look at verse 23. This now begins to get into the rich man's fate. It says, In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And here, friends, Hades represents what in the Old Testament was Sheol, and in the New Testament, Jesus refers to as Gehenna, or translated hell. It's the same thing. We're not going to get into a theology of how they all fit together. It's all one place. If your fate is in Sheol, it's going to be in hell. If your fate is in Hades, it's going to be in hell. And I do want to tell you this, though. We're not going to get into a theology of this, but I want to tell you that the clear teaching of Scripture is that hell is a real place, that it's permanent, and that it's miserable. I think we we kind of want to live with blinders on and pretend like hell's not real sometimes. But it is. And this man is living proof. I just want to provide a, a few descriptions, in fact, uh, descriptions of what hell looks like from Jesus' own mouth in Scripture. In Mark 9:48, Jesus describes hell as a place where worm does not die. And here's what this symbolizes. It symbolizes that those in hell have a fully informed and accusing conscience that gnaws and nags and relentlessly accuses them of guilt as they're tortured in hell. Worm does not die. Matthew twenty two thirteen. Jesus describes it as outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, meaning there's no light, there's no goodness. Instead, there's pain and suffering. Revelation fourteen eleven. it's described as a place where there's no rest day and night. Again, this means that it's permanent. It's ongoing. There's no hope. Hell is a permanent reality. And our passage confirms this as it says, the rich man was in torment. Now, if you're like me, I just pause and I think, God, why? Why so severe? Why so torturous? Why so harsh? Why? And then I remember that our God is holy that our God is majestic, that he's perfect, that no unclean thing can dwell in his presence. It would be against his character to have sin dwell in union with him. 
And not only this, but he's good and he's made us. He created us out of love to enjoy him, to walk in fellowship with him, to be his representatives on earth, to worship him forever. The best joy that we could ever have is to enjoy God fully. And he knows that, so he wants to share himself with us. And yet what do we do as mankind, as a whole? What do we do? We look at God and we say, no, I'm going my own way. I'm going to do this my own way. Starting with the very first one of us, Adam and Eve, and all the way down through, we all sin. We all rebel. We all turn away from God. Friends, this is sin. Sin is missing the mark of God's intended design for us. And the punishment of sin against the holy and just and righteous God, he's a good judge, is that he but will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He must punish sin in order to be just and good and holy. He's got to deal with it. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says that the Lord Jesus will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And the next verse says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. I think that's such a striking phrase. We want to go our own way? That's what we're going to get for eternity. Or at least some people will who choose to go away from the presence of the Lord. This is hell, friends. It's away from the presence of the Lord in eternal destruction. And this is where the rich man in this parable is. He is in hell. He's allowed to see into heaven for a moment, and I believe for the purpose of illustration for this story, but this man is in hell. And as he looks to heaven, he sees Abraham and he sees Lazarus. And this is a significant detail of the story because I want to justify why further in your minds, why is this man in hell? Why did this man go to hell just for being a rich man? Well, he looks and he sees Lazarus and he calls out and he calls Lazarus by name. And here's the significance of that detail is that this man knew who Lazarus was. He was not ignorant to Lazarus' existence. In fact, if you notice in the earlier verses, it says Lazarus was laid at his gate. He was laid at the front gate of this man's estate. That means this man walked by Lazarus every single day. Now, lest we be deceived into thinking this is a works-based salvation, it's not. But here's the point, is that a Christian, one who truly knew God, would show mercy to someone in need. He would show compassion on a man laying at his gate, suffering with boils all over, and he can't move, and he's in that state. He would show it. Let me prove it to you. 1 John 3.17 Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Answer, it doesn't. James 2.15 If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Answer, it's of no use. Jesus' point is that that is not true faith. Or James's point is that that is not true faith. And here's the point going back to the parable. If this man truly knew God, he would have shown compassion to Lazarus manifesting his faith. So now he's got this shock. He's looked up. He's seeing the poor man with Father Abraham. And the rich man cries out in his first plea to Abraham. Look at verse 24. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. And friends, this is really where we see just the fascinating part of this parable or this story. 
where circumstances are just completely flopped. In fact, in my opinion, this is the climax of the story. I believe all the verses lead up to verse 24 and then the following ones uh, come off of it because of this. Here it is. Are you ready? Here's the point. Who you are and what you do impacts where you will be. Who you are and what you do now impacts where you will be then. This man assumed that because he was Jewish, the rich man assumed that because he was Jewish and a descendant of Abraham, that he would be in heaven. It didn't matter if he responded to God's word. It didn't matter if he had true saving faith. In fact, in Luke 3, 8, John the Baptist said, Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God's able to raise up children of Abraham. In other words, there's no significance to being a descendant of Abraham when it comes to saving faith. Abraham had nothing to do with it, but instead, true and genuine faith did. And this rich man never experienced that. And friends, I just want to relate that to today for a moment. Many today do the same thing, right? We rely on our religious background. We rely on a baptism or some religious ceremony that we did. Oh, I grew up in the church. I'm good. Oh, my parents, they, they know God. Oh, someone else did something good for me on my behalf. I'll be good to go. Jesus will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. You must have saving faith. Now, another presupposition that this rich man had was that his riches would contribute to the afterlife. I don't know why this was, but it was interesting for me to read that being rich and poor had a lot to do with where someone would end up in the Jewish mind. They, for some reason, thought that poor people would end up, poor, lame, sick, all of them would end up in hell, and that because of their wealth, it somehow would merit them some sort of acceptance in the afterlife. And I think that ties in here with the shock that as the rich man goes to hell and he looks up and he sees Lazarus with Abraham of all people. Boy, would that be surprising. And I, I mean, Luke... You know, Luke says this in Luke chapter 6. He says, Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. And guys, this is just epitomized with the rich man. In fact, I think there's a pithy saying that goes, For believers, this life is the worst that it will ever be. For unbelievers, this life is the best that it will ever be. It's as good as it gets. It's all downhill from here. And the rich man epitomizes that in this passage. I just think of the irony of this today. Many who are rich today don't know God. They don't care about God. They're self-sufficient. They think that they've got it made. And yet, there's no contentment. And there certainly won't be in the afterlife. On the flip side, there's many who are suffering today, who love the Lord. And friends, their circumstances are going to be so drastically reversed, it's going to be just awesome. I think of all the brother and sisters that we know who are suffering from some sort of physical ailment, even right here within this room, whether it's cancer or MS or headaches or whatever it is. Guys in heaven, there's going to be none of that. It's going to be completely reversed. So, It's not the rich who are going to heaven, but the poor. Not the arrogant, but the pompous. Not the humble, but the meek. And I just think of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
And here's the thing. This was such a paradigm shift for the rich man. I'm still not even convinced that he got it once he got into hell. And here's why. Look at what he says in verse 24. And again in verse 27. He says, send Lazarus. He says, send Lazarus to dip my, uh, a, a little bit of water on my tongue. Send Lazarus to my family. He's still viewing Lazarus as a lower class citizen. He didn't ask Abraham to do it or an angel. He asked Lazarus to do it. And yet, I'm just blown away with Lazarus. Once again, he doesn't respond with a single word. Just silent. Just thankful to be saved and in heaven with God. Well, we already talked about hell, but I think our theology just continues to develop here. All that the rich man asked for is a dip of the tip of his finger to cool the tongue. In other words, friends, even a single drop would be so relieving of the tormenting conditions of hell. And we're going to talk about it a little bit more in a bit as well. But following this plea and request, request, Abraham's response is most interesting. Look at verse 25. Verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And here we see this great chasm begin to come into play. It's going to be developed in 26, but Abraham is presenting the chasm of hell and heaven and that they are inseparable. And he begins by saying that hell is agonizing. He says you are in agony and that heaven is a place of comfort. And I mentioned this a moment ago, but friends, for all of us who have trusted in Christ, heaven is going to be a place of immense comfort. I want to read Revelation 21 verse 3. Listen to, listen to the first verse. Verse 3, it says, God will be among them. He will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Three times it mentions God will be among us. Is that not spectacular? As you read and your view of God grows, the fact that he's going to be right here with us is just incredible. And then it says this. He says, it says, he will wipe every tear from their eye. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. What a wonderful picture of those who trust in God. And Lazarus here represents any and every Christian who's trusted in God. And friends, if you're going through any hard time, I just want you to be encouraged. There's going to be comfort in heaven. There's going to be immense comfort in heaven. But for those who don't, there's no going back. The judgment is going to be permanent. Look at verse 26. He says, Besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And so again, he introduces this great chasm of separating heaven and hell. And just to define this term, a chasm is a gulf. It's a great ravine that cannot be transversed. It's a deep cleft in the surface of a planet such as earth. And you notice the text says it's a great chasm. So it's one that cannot be crossed from one side or another. And here's basically the picture. It's basically like an ant lining up on the side of the Grand Canyon, preparing to launch to the other side. And by the way, at the widest point, the Grand Canyon is 18 miles wide. It's just impossible, right? It's foolish to even think of it. It'd be launching from here past Costco somewhere. It can't happen, okay? That's the idea here. It's the biggest, greatest chasm that you can think of. And that's what separates heaven and hell. There's no crossing over. There's not a bridge once you're there. Now, related to this, I do want to just probe on a side tangent for a moment and ask the question, purgatory? I think not, friends. 
It doesn't exist. It can't. This passage does not allow it. And here's what, here's what we find is purgatory is a man-made doctrine that's a misinterpretation of really two things. 1 Peter 3 and passages that refer to someone sleeping. 1 Peter 3, 19 refers to Jesus descending and making proclamation to the spirits. And a simple interpretation of that is that he is making a proclamation of his victory as Messiah to the spirits who were imprisoned back in Genesis chapter 6 during the flood. So that's 1 Peter 3. The latter, when it talks about people sleeping, is another way to say that someone who was a believer died. They fell asleep because they don't really die. If you're a believer, you have eternal life. Your soul lives on. So those are the two passages. And by the way, I just want to say another note on this. Dee and I just took a great class on the Reformation. The doctrine of purgatory was very convenient during the Reformation times and a little bit before that for the Roman Catholic Church because the church leveraged it to give out indulgences. An indulgence was something that allowed someone to purchase time out of purgatory in exchange for money. You could do this for your own sentence. You could do this for a loved one who was already there. So for example, if your grandmother had been sentenced to 100,000 years in purgatory, you could pay them a lump sum of money and cut that in half. And I mean, if you're following the priest's orders at that time, who wouldn't want to save grandma, right? It's somewhat understandable how you could be sucked into that. However, here's the point, friends. The chasm is fixed. I'm just reading what the passage says. The chasm is fixed. You cannot cross over from here to there. And by the way, it immediately follows their death. It says the poor man dies, the rich man dies. Boom, they're in heaven. Chasm's fixed. And so I'm going to submit to you that this passage disallows any view of purgatory. Heaven and hell are permanent. And in fact, here's another text, Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed unto man to die once and then comes judgment. So we live, we die, boom, we're in judgment. And that's where it is determined. That's where the judgment happens, the separation of believers and unbelievers. Now, we're going to move into the last chunk of this text, and this is really exciting to me, because this last chunk deals with this idea that Scripture is sufficient to determine eternity. And starting in verse 27, we see the second plea to Abraham. If you look at 27, he said, Then I beg you, this is the rich man speaking, Speaking to Abraham, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Now, just to add to our theology of hell as a, as a side observation, guys, hell is not somewhere you want to go. I think there's this crazy idea, uh, this wacky idea that hell's not going to be that bad. I've heard guys say, oh, hell will be great. It'll just be a party with all my friends. We'll bring our beers. We'll play some ping pong and watch some football. It's like, guys, this is not the idea of hell. Lazarus, or sorry, the rich man's first thought is, I want to get out of here. Right? He recognizes it's permanent. Can you give me some water to cool my tongue at least? What's his very next thought? Okay, then please send someone to my family so that none of my family comes here. I wouldn't wish this upon my worst enemy. This is torment. He's the closest thing we have to a person going to hell and talking about it and giving us a testimony. And I think the testimony is pretty clear. It's miserable, friends. It is miserable. And so Abraham responds to to the rich man begging him for mercy. In verse 29, he says, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets, he says. They have Moses and the prophets. Who, who, what is this a reference to? It's a reference to all of Scripture. 
At the time of, the, of this being written, the Old Testament was complete. The New Testament obviously was not yet. And so Moses represents the law because he wrote the first five books of the Bible. And the prophets referred to everything else. In fact, in the same chapter, in verse 16, it says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. And so the law and the prophets are everything in Scripture up until John the Baptist which we know was a contemporary of Jesus. And so it refers to all of the Old Testament. And what I want us to think about with you further is the irony in this. Jesus, and listen to this, friends, Jesus is telling this story to the Pharisees. Likely one that he made up, or it was a true story. Either way, he's telling this story to the Pharisees with them in mind. And to make the point that Scripture is sufficient to lead one to God, Abraham is in heaven and uses the example. Abraham himself refers to Moses and the prophets. Now I want you to track with me, what word of God did Abraham respond to in order to be saved? Abraham's story is in Genesis, about chapter 11 through the 20s. And in Genesis chapter 15, uh, it says that Abraham believed God and it credited It was credited to him as righteousness. And what word of God did he believe? All Abraham had to work with was God telling him that I'm going to give you a land, a seed, a blessing, and that you would be a blessing to other nations. There was nothing written at that point. Abraham had no word of God. He didn't have Genesis even. He had none of the Bible at that point, and yet he believed God with faith, and God accredited to him an alien imputed righteousness. So now Abraham looks to the rich man and by implication the Pharisees who are listening to this story by Jesus and he says, are you kidding me? You want a special messenger to go to your family? They have all the first five books of Moses and all the 34 other books of the Old Testament. Let them hear what God has said in history. Well, let's compare it to us today. How about us? Friends, listen. Not only do we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Not only do we have all the prophets, the Psalms, everything in the Old Testament. But we have someone who lived as a contemporary of Jesus as an eyewitness and recorded God in flesh, the express manifestation of God's nature. He recorded that in a gospel account for our benefit. We get to know exactly what God was like when he was in flesh, how to obtain salvation, how to walk closely with God, how to live out our Christian faith. Oh wait, but not just one, but we have two. We have two. Oh wait, not just two. We have three. Oh wait, not just three. We have four eyewitness accounts that all look at the story of Jesus from different perspectives and affirm the same truths, writing to different audiences from different places, and there's no contradictions. The God, man, in flesh, we have recorded for us. And not only that, but then we have all the apostles following that who lived with Jesus and clearly stated the mystery in clear form of the Old Testament of the Messiah. Guys, we have no excuse. Man, I'm just, I'm comparing myself to the rich man and his family here. We have no excuse. We have the complete canon of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, who lives within as a testament. There is no excuse. God has spoken Revelation is clear. Creation is revelation. The conscience is revelation. And we have the complete canon of Scripture as revelation. And I think here's the point now, returning to this text. If Abraham was without excuse, then certainly the rich man was without excuse. And we, most of all, are without excuse. And here's the biblical idea. Are you ready for this? This is a convicting thing. The more revelation you know, the more you are responsible for 
The more you know, the more you're responsible for. And so Abraham says, let them hear Moses and the prophets. Here's the third plea as we begin to wind down here to Abraham from the rich man. Rich man just can't take no for an answer. Verse 30, he replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. What do you guys think about this request? Is there merit to it? Would someone raising from the dead be the final bit of revelation to them that will convince them, that will change their minds to repent and believe? How about you? Are you, I'm going to use the term, are you deceived into thinking that a sign or a miracle would strengthen your faith, that it would convince you to believe in Jesus perhaps? Maybe sometimes you think, God, will you just show me a sign? Or maybe you've asked God, God, prove your existence to me. Or prove to me that your word is true. Because everyone around me is telling me it's not. Show me a sign. Flip this car over. Or do some miracle for me so that I'll believe. What do you guys think? Will Abraham and Jesus agree with this logic? Verse 31. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And here's the point, guys. Here's the point of this passage, or of this verse. Even if you did witness a miracle, it wouldn't change anything. It wouldn't change anything. I would submit to you, we witness miracles all the time. The complexity of a human life, right? The complexity of creation, all the stars and planets all being held in in this compact. You've got so many laws of physics going on. We have no idea where the laws of physics come from. We just know they exist. I'm going on a tangent here for a moment. We have no idea how gravity works. We know, we know it's there. We don't know where it comes from, what it is. We don't know really much about gravity except for that it keeps us on this rock. And that's just one of the laws. You start digging into all these and how finely tuned everything is, there's revelation everywhere. And you think God doing a miracle is going to convince you? It's not, friends. It wouldn't convince his, his family. It's not going to convince you if you're not believing right now. How do I know? Well, let me prove this to you. Mark chapter 3, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. I mean, just bam, heals it. Man's got a withered hand. It's decaying, right? Decaying hand. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, it says he stretched out and his hand was restored on the spot. Next sentence, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The Pharisees watched Jesus heal a man's hand with a snap of a finger And immediately, they seek to destroy him. You know how many times Jesus did miracles in front of people and they didn't respond? In fact, let's get real specific. John chapter 11, ringing you bells. A man named, ironically, Lazarus, dies. He's dead for three days. Jesus walks to the tomb. He says, Lazarus, rise. He gets up and rises from the dead after being dead for three days. Surely they'd believe Surely they would believe. Jesus just, ro- the man was dead for three days. He rose him from the dead. One chapter later, John chapter 12, verse 9. The large crowd of Jews then learned that he, Jesus, was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Golly, poor guy Lazarus, he's dead, he's up, now they want to kill him again. I just feel bad for him. But here's the point. Did they believe? No. They are trying to not only kill Jesus, now they're going to kill Lazarus too to wipe out the evidence. 
Jesus rose him from the dead. Okay, so you got the hand, you got Lazarus. Third evidence. Jesus himself rose from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead, also dead for three days. And he rises from the dead and he doesn't just appear to his own little followers. He appears to hundreds of people. Did they believe? Did this convince them? Matthew chapter 28, verse 11. Now while they were on their way, and this, by the way, is referring to the the Roman centurion who had been in charge of guarding the tomb, who all of a sudden see the angel sitting there. They're in shock. The tomb's empty. The angel says he's risen from the dead. Uh, He's God. You know, they announced to him the good news. And here's what happens. They're on their way. Some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Did they believe? No. They made up a bri- they bribed these guys and paid them so that they'd tell a lie. Friends, here's the point. It's not a matter of needing a sign from God. This passage throws that thought right out the window. The issue is the hardness of the heart in not wanting to believe God and believe his word and instead wanting to live in sin. Abraham comes back to Moses and the prophets for several reasons. Number one, the law and the prophets teach us about God. We learn about the character of God explicitly stated in the law and the prophets. I'm talking about the Old Testament. We see him on display and how he works. We see a clear picture of how he's just and holy and how he required punishment for sin. You see this through the whole sacrificial system in Leviticus. And yet, even from the beginning, you see God's saving grace toward Adam and Noah and Abraham and David and all the way down, you see God at work. So the law and the prophets teach us about God. Number two, the law and the prophets show us our sin. Two references here. Romans 7, 7, Paul says, I would not have known sin except through the law. goes on to say, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet except for the law says don't covet. wouldn't have known what adultery was, but it says don't commit adultery. The law shows us our sin. He adds in Galatians 3.24 that the law was a tutor to tutor us to Christ. And that leads me to my third point. The law and the prophets point to Jesus. In fact, at the end of Luke's gospel, two different times, Jesus shows two different sets of guys places where he was alluded to or prefigured in the Old Testament. To add to this, in John 5.46, Jesus condemns the Jews. He says, for if you had believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. There's so many prophetic passages that point ahead to a Messiah figure who would come in God's name, both as the reigning king and as the suffering servant. So friends, I think you get the point. The rich man and the rich man's family had more than enough information to know that they needed God as their Savior, to know that they needed to believe God as Abraham had himself, and ultimately that they needed to believe in God's promise, the Messiah who would come and who had come in their day. So in closing, this was a long passage. There's a lot of details in this. I want to just summarize it again with three points, and they're the same three points from the sermon, and it's this. Number one, There is a reality of death and eternity. We're all going to die. Okay? If you haven't accepted that yet, welcome to reality. We're all going to die. Psalm says man's days are 70, if by way of strength, maybe 80. Now a lot of people live a little bit longer than that, but not much. We are all going to die. And James talks about how this life is a vapor. Here, then gone. 
And friends, this passage warns us of the reality that is coming. We're going to one of two places, and the deciding factor is what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus? I'm all sorts off my notes now. Here we go. Number two, a great chasm separates eternity. A great chasm separates eternity. And again, just as a warning, once in eternity, the decision has been made. Perhaps you've heard this before, but in Revelation, there's this great scene where all, everything's gathered to Jesus and, and maybe you've heard this pithy saying, you're either going to bow, bow the knee now or you will be forced to bow it later. You bow the knee willingly now or you're forced to bow it later. Everyone's going to bow to Jesus. Jesus made everything. He's going to rule everything. He's going to reconcile everything to God and then God will judge. And friends, if you're not on the right side, it's not going to be fun. Don't say you haven't been warned. And I just think, listen, There's no time to dink around with sex and drugs and alcohol and all the things that the world has to offer. There is eternal riches found in Jesus in knowing him, in loving him. There's a a satisfaction and a joy and contentment that is beyond anything this world has to offer. Trust in Jesus. Love Jesus. Enjoy it. Number three, and lastly, the scripture is sufficient to determine eternity. Guys, what you do with the word of God determines it all. You either believe God in his word or you don't. The scripture has the end of reconciling sinners in their relationship with God. I believe that is the end of the scriptures and it's only achievable through faith in Jesus Christ. So I just want to ask, do you know him? And maybe beyond salvation, do you love him? Do you love God? Do you love his word? Do you long to be with him? In the end, we're all going to stand face to face with God I just pray that like Lazarus, we can, we can be ones who are categorized as those who God has helped. Lazarus' name, God has helped me. Only those who have trusted in Christ alone will go on to be with God. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I don't know if this was clear. I struggle through this passage, Lord, and it's clear to me, but I just pray that it's clear, God. It's your word. It's not my word, God. Oh, Lord, we, we want to be with you. Lord, I just pray for those of us who have been walking with you for a while, who have maybe heard this passage before, Lord, who are accustomed to just these Bible stories and, and the gospel can become dull. Lord, fill our hearts with joy. God, would you strike us in a fresh way with the reality that we are sons and daughters of God, that Christ has paid our price. Lord, that we're going to be comforted in heaven. We think about the eternal torment of hell, and God, I know I deserve it. I earned it myself. Lord, I've sinned. We've all sinned, and we deserve hell, and yet in your grace and mercy, you provided the perfect sacrifice. So Lord, we pray for those who are on the fence about their relationship with you, who maybe don't know for certain. They can't say with certainty, I know I'm going to heaven because my faith is in Jesus. God, grip their hearts tonight. Turn their hearts to you, Lord. Lord, cause them to put a childlike faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus, who he was, in that he was God and Savior, and what he did, that he died for our sake. Lord, thank you for life in his name. God, we want to live with an eternal perspective as we see from this passage that we're all going to face eternity. And so help us to live life now in light of then. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.